this was about as bizarre and as easy as it gets. So the number for me was a number that would allow me to never have to work. I feel like we got top, top, top. I went from a sale of you know five hundred thousand dollars to in debt. One hundred ninety-two million dollars. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host John Warlow. Hey guys, this is John Warlow. This episode of Built to Sell Radio is brought to you by the Value Builder Score. If you haven't got your score yet, I'd encourage you to take 13 minutes and complete the questionnaire you'll find at valuebuilder.com. It'll give you your score on the eight key drivers of company value. You're going to learn some different things about what drives the value of your business. You'll be able to see how you performed on these eight unique factors. Go to valuebuilder.com. So if you've been listening to this podcast for a while, you know I've got a pretty strong view on earnouts, and that is that your job as an entrepreneur is to avoid them at all costs. Having said that, there are a reality in selling your company. Um, unless you have a giant corporation or a huge technology company or a business that's easy to swap out the management of in a on, you know a turn of a dime, you're going to have an earnout. An earnout, as you know, is where the buyer of your business places a future goal in front of you to try to hit. And if you hit the goal, you you get some extra money for your business. If you don't hit it, um, there's nothing. So it's at-risk money. And every buyer on the face of the planet wants to minimize their risk and therefore will try to put as much of your proceeds in the earnout. And every seller wants 100% of their cash up front, usually. And therefore, your job as, you know, if you want to get a deal done is to somehow meet in the middle. And usually, you're going to have some proportion of your deal in an earnout. You know, in a professional services environment, you know, it could be 50, 60, even 70% of your deal at risk in future uh, proceeds. If you have a technology company or a company that's a lot easier to transition, it could be a much smaller proportion of your deal. But earnouts are a reality. And what we've got in our next interview is Mac Lackey, who has done what I think is a really novel job of structuring his earnout in a somewhat untraditional way. Earnouts, as you probably know, if you've spoken to entrepreneurs about it, are fraught with problems. But what Mac has done is come up with a formula which, which is somewhat irrefutable. It's really easy to know the impact he's going to have on his buyer. He sold his company Kick which is a soccer application um, uh, to a company that eventually became NBC Sports. And so a tremendous exit for Mac. He took a big chunk of his deal on an earnout, And I think it's the way he structured his earnout that is really worth focusing on in this interview. Enjoy the interview with Mac Lackey. Mac Lackey, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Thank you. Happy to be here. So I love this business because, you know, sometimes we interview people with really, really profitable businesses, but aren't that sexy and interesting. But you have a really cool business that you sold. So talk about Kick. What did you guys do? Sure. Uh, well, thank you. Yeah, we... Um we're a business that is uh, focused on soccer. And uh, the reason that's important is it's been my life's passion. So I grew up a, a soccer player, played through college, played professionally. It's my sort of personal passion. Um, and Kick as a business really took that sort of deep background in soccer and some of my frustration as it related to seeing soccer through the lens as a parent. So when my kids started playing soccer, uh, like many people, 
I was getting very used to using my mobile phone for Uber rides and getting on planes. And um, all of a sudden, you see the soccer world, which is in a time warp. And it's three ring binders and laminated business cards. And uh, I thought, you know, this is this has to be changed. It has to be disrupted. So kick my kid is, my kids play baseball mac just as an aside and the, yeah. i don't know which is worse baseball websites like the association or soccer but baseball has got to be up there i mean they have the the websites where they've got like everything in all caps like tryouts are next thursday and they're underlined and italicized and it's like the brutal it's unbelievable so i don't know who has the worst sort of uh technology uh front to the world it's soccer or baseball but we could we could duel it out Yes, it's uh, it's really surprising. And so that's really the opportunity we saw as we said, you know, this this needs to be reimagined. It needs to change. And so we created a business called Kick, K-Y-C-K or Kick.com. And the the idea was simply to bring technology and innovation to that space, particularly focused on the youth category. So we did everything from reimagine how you register to uh, play soccer, whether it's tournaments or club teams to how you purchase product, so team uniforms, spirit wear, uh, how you get your player card, which as I mentioned, literally was an, a laminated card um, <laughs> previous to Kick and some other uh, companies in the space. So that is essentially what we did is we, uh, we reinvented soccer from a technology perspective. And a lot of our focus out of the gates was working with some of the larger uh, organizations in the soccer world. So we created some exclusive partnerships with groups like US Club Soccer, uh, Soccer.com, and uh, that really helped sort of accelerate our entrance into the market. Fantastic. So if I'm a parent and I've got a, a soccer kid, uh, I can pull up my mobile kick.com app and I can look for like, where's the where's the practice? Where's the location? What do I need to bring? Do, like if I need to register for the special tournament, I can do it all on my mobile. Is that right? Yeah, that's exactly right. We tried to integrate some disparate systems that were all uh, very fragmented and, and you had to log in and out a lot of different things and sign the same documents multiple times. And that's what we set out to do. And um, we were in the middle of that process when we ultimately uh, sold the business. But that's certainly uh, what we were doing. Awesome. What was the business model? How did you guys make money? Uh, it was a combination of things. So we um, we had some very large partners who were um, paying us some development fees to help bring technology to their respective platforms. Um, so we were kind of their outsourced innovation to some degree, but a lot of it was transactional. So when a player would um, register, uh, you know, percentage with a credit card transaction, um, when they would buy a product, it would either be an affiliate transaction or a percentage of the credit card. So a lot of it was, you know, just sort of transactional with clubs all the way down to parents. The classic Uber model, you didn't own the cars, you didn't own the associations, you just took a piece of the action at every transaction point. That's exactly right. Love it. Love it. The Uber of soccer. <laughs> so um, what got you interested in selling this business? Maybe talk a little bit about, was there like a triggering event that, that made you want to sell? Well, it's, it's a good question. You know, by my background, um, I have built and sold a number of companies. And so it was always top of the brain that Kick was likely going to be a, a business that we sell. That was just kind of not that we built it to sell it per se, but we assumed that was an outcome. And so I've always had an eye towards, you know, what is the exit going to be? Who are the likely acquires? What do those people value? Um, but specifically, 
we got to sort of an inflection point where the industry that we were starting to innovate, we were no longer alone. There, there were other people that saw this opportunity, some of which were very niche oriented, like kick, some of which were larger multi-sport, multi-category players. And as the funding and the consolidation started in the space, um, you know, my focus was, was honestly just winning. You know, how do we position ourselves and our investors and my team to win? And so I started dialogue with some of the other companies in our space that I felt like were in a position, either given resources or vision or, or you know, relationships or distribution, something like that. Um, so a lot of it for me was I felt like our ability to truly win the space was going to happen either by raising a tremendous amount of money and or um, finding the right strategic partner, which is ultimately what we decided to do. And maybe talk a little bit about who the we is. Uh, when you started the business, did you have co-founders, investors? Maybe talk about the capital structure a little bit before you sold. Sure. Um, so yeah, in terms of initial capital structure, I have a, uh, a longtime business partner who was a co-founder uh, with me of the business. Initially, we had uh, just exited a previous business and um, although he was a co-founder uh, and a longtime co-founder of mine, he actually stayed to run the business that we had sold. And so um, I was sort of running Kick full time. And one of the uh, early uh, team members of mine, uh, Trent Hawthorne, became kind of a partner in the business as we started it uh, to sort of ramp it up. And then I, given a couple of previous exits, I've had a, uh, a good group of investors that have backed me in, in a couple of situations that were early investors. And so we did end up raising a series of uh, what, what you would sort of think of as seed rounds, no institutional capital, all individuals um, that backed us through a series of uh, capital raises. And Mac, what were the deal terms on the seed round? Was it um, uh, convertible debt that you used or how, how did this, how was the structure on that? Um, our first round was, was an equity round. And, um, you know, we had a little bit of a, you know, a luxury of being, you know, this was a, this was actually my fifth uh, company. So I um, had a little bit of, you know, leverage and, and kind of a formulaic approach to working with investors and kind of handpicked who they were in that initial round, but it was an equity structure. And then uh, we did a few rounds, uh, most of which was equity, although we did do a convertible round as a bridge. Um, so we had a couple different structures in there. With five successful exits under your belt, I mean, one of the questions I've got, forgive me, is is why not finance it all yourself? Why bring on outside capital? I'm assuming you could have written the check to do all the development work yourself. Uh, maybe I'm wrong, but why bring in outside investors? Uh, it's, a, it's a great question. Um, you know, and I, I think the the short answer is I I believe there is a category of investor, um, individual investor or angel investor that is highly strategic. And if you looked at our initial investors, we basically found an expert in every category that we felt might be or was certainly important uh, in our growth strategy. For example, uh, you know, a digital media expert in Silicon Valley, an infrastructure expert from New York, um, several, you know, very connected people in the soccer space. So, um, you know, a content CEO. So we really sort of handpicked and said, these people can add a tremendous amount of value as advisors, mentors. Um, so a lot of it was just strategic value. Their capital was, was important, 
but a lot of it was really just value. Smart. So you're bringing in sort of smart dollars. How big a round are these? Like how, how, what size of tranche are they buying? Are they investing 10K, 100K? Like give us a sense of scope. Sure. So our investors over the life of Kick, uh, which was about four years total, um, our investors ranged from, I think our smallest investor was actually a $10,000 investor and we had a single you know, million dollar investor check. So uh, average being, I would say 150 to 200,000. Um, we raised about 4 million in total um, across multiple rounds and multiple years. And so it was a pretty broad range, but a lot of the, you know, the $10,000 investor was highly strategic. And uh, for him, for example, it certainly was not about the money. (laughs) And, and how are you valuing the company for these rounds of investment? Well, you know, initially we looked at uh, sort of the market and said, you know, where are pre-money valuations for startups in the media space or in the tech space? And as you certainly know, it changes a little bit for geography and valuations on the West Coast at that time were in the sort of three to five million pre-money range for our first round and for, given it was, for just a concept company mac or like one with revenue like with three three to five million just for an idea it was it was really for us it was a combination of uh uh you know backing me in a space that i had already been successful and exited previously um so some of these investors had already you know sort of profited from investing in me um, but also we had a couple of exclusive relationships already drilled that were highly valuable. So the combination of kind of the the team I assembled, the concept we had, and then some uh, relationships that we had under exclusive agreements was was kind of the foundation. But it was definitely pushing the high end of the valuation range just because it was, you know, not my first rodeo, as they say. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. And so you're structuring these deals. I mean, were they being brought in as investors with the same deal terms as you were as the founder? In other words, when you exited, did they get exactly the same deal that you did? Or or were there two like tranches or, or, or classes of shares? How did you structure that? Yeah, so our investors were all preferred. And I think that's a, you know, important part of it, which is that, you know, I only participate in the upside after our investors um, are made whole. And so, you know, given investors preference, um, was one of the reasons I think the valuation, you know, we were able to push it a little bit because they were preferred and that that remained true throughout the capital structure. So Mac, for people who don't know what that means, maybe you could in layman's terms explain what what it means to be to give your investors preferred shares versus you as a as a founder having common shares, I'm assuming. <laughs> Absolutely. So basically it means uh, when the company is sold, for example, the first dollar out goes to investors and every dollar after that goes to investors until 100% of what they invested is returned. So they basically get to take, if they wrote a $10,000 check, they get their $10,000 back. So once all the investors are made whole, then common shareholders participate uh, in the deal. So um, if investors had invested $5 million and we sold it for 10, the first $5 million would go back to investors. And then we would split the 5 million based on ownership of the company. So it really gives them uh, preference in terms of how capital flows uh, from an exit. Such a great point. Thanks for clarifying that, Max. So 
You, the, the landscape is evolving, huge, well-financed competitors are evolving, and you're like, okay, either we got to go raise a truckload of money or we've got to find a buyer. Yeah, that's exactly right. We, um, we had some great support from investors, and I, th I think our niche was fairly uh, carved out with some exclusive agreements, but it, it really felt like in order to achieve everything we wanted to do, as you said, it was going to be a boatload of capital and maybe some hand-to-hand -hand combat. You know, it was not going to be a chip shot to go from where we were to uh, where we ultimately wanted to be as a business. Got it. And so you're having these conversations. Maybe talk a little bit about the conversations you're having with industry players. I mean, are you are you opening your kimono to the point where you're saying, look, we you know we, we'd be interested in some sort of strategic tie-up slash acquisition? Were you being that candid with these companies in your space? Well, you know, John, one of the things I I did very early in my career that that has paid dividends over time is I've always had this point of view that people that might be considered competitors ultimately could be you know partners of mine or we could be collaborating so i've always had this sort of i'm going to talk to competitors early um, and in this case i mean literally probably two and a half years ago i reached out to well before we were interested in selling uh, i reached out to a few of the ceos that were some of the bigger um, perhaps you know better funded companies in the category and just said, Hey, I want to, you know, introduce myself. I want to tell you what we're doing. Uh, maybe there's a way we collaborate. If nothing else, I want to meet all the smart people in the category. And so I, I really started that process well before we were in the exit conversation so that, you know, when we finally got to this point, I was almost calling friends and people that I respected to say, Hey, you know, here's where we are as a business. We've got some, uh, investor interest. We could, uh, certainly pursue, you know, the next investment round. But at the same time, before we do that, I really want to see if there is an opportunity to collaborate with some of our, uh, you know, some of our peers. And that really allowed us to get into the dialogue about vision, uh, goals and things like that. And, and from there, you know, you can take it into just about anywhere. And did you have a firm, an M&A firm representing you in these conversations? We did not. No, I, I did that directly. And in retrospect, was there, did you do that um, intentionally that you wanted to do it directly without representation or, or was there some other reason? Yeah. I mean, I, I do have a little bit of a bias towards uh, doing it myself. I think there are some fantastic M&A advisors. Um, I certainly tend to work with attorneys that I think are very uh, capable in terms of transactions and they can advise me and others on, you know, structure and terms and things like that. But in terms of positioning the company for an acquisition or a capital raise, I've tended to do that myself because I don't really feel like anyone can tell the story with the knowledge or passion that I'm bringing to the table. And in a lot of cases, it, it's really more passion than knowledge. I mean, I'm not trying to suggest I'm a you know an expert. It's really that I believe in what we're doing. And I want that to come across to people we're talking to. Yeah, for sure. So talk to us about the, how the conversations progress from sort of warm and fuzzy chats with people you knew and respected to acquisition conversation, in particular with Sports Engine. How did that sort of go? How did the temperature kind of uh, escalate on that? Yeah, that's a great question. One of the things that uh, I was very happy in this process that uh, I'm, when I met the sports engine CEO uh, early in the process, I was candidly um, surprised how impressed with him I was. Um, 
you know, I have a pretty high bar in my mind of people that I think, you know, gosh, I want to work with this person or I want to collaborate. And I came away from a early conversation with him and as well as, a, you know, another company or two thinking these are very smart people that share a similar vision, share a similar point of view. So we had kind of tackled that, you know, check the, the personal box early. And then as we got into this dialogue about where Kick was going and some of the opportunities that we saw, I think we, you know, it went from, gosh, that's interesting to, gosh, how can you bring that to Sports Engine? How can we leverage these relationships you guys have, some of the software you've built? And so we got into the, the M&A kind of conversations pretty quickly because I created a little bit of a, um, and it was real, you know, we have a timeline, you know, we have to make a decision to either sell the business or do a transaction, but we can't sit in limbo. Um, we're moving forward. So why, why couldn't you sit in limbo, Mac? Well, I think, you know, we were at that point, we were not profitable. We were still growing uh, pretty quickly, both in terms of, um, you're trying to market our products, um, you know, start to grow the team, start to think about international expansion. And as a small business, that was a very expensive uh, endeavor. And so uh, we did not have the capital sitting in the bank to just sort of stay in that process for very long without going back and, you know, back out to the market to raise capital. So I kind of set a, a, you know, date in my mind and said, all right, we're either going to do a transaction um, during this timeline, or we're just going to raise capital and, you know, stay heads down. So you did have sort of this burning bridge, burning platform kind of idea. Sports Engine ultimately being the company that you, that acquired the uh, kick, but there were a couple of other folks at the table. How did you get from having multiple conversations going to, to kind of getting, if you will, engaged to Sports Engine? Well, as you probably know, the deeper you get into the process, uh, you know, you, you essentially have to pick a partner and it's generally forced by the buy side, meaning they uh, ask you to sign sort of an exclusive agreement that you'll give them a period of time during which you can have exclusive negotiations and you're not going to sell the company out from under them. And, you know, we had to give that serious consideration before we went exclusive, but we had already decided, myself, my board, that um, to the extent Sports Engine wanted to move forward, we thought that was the the best partner for us. And so once we got sort of indication that the Sports Engine side felt, you know, in a, in a similar fashion that they wanted to move forward with us and get a deal done, we went exclusive with them and gave ourselves, I think it was 60 days to kind of work through a transaction. This is such an important point, and I've talked about it before on this show that at this point of exclusivity, the balance of power is 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 liable to switch from you as the seller having more power than the buyer to a situation where the buyer certainly has more power over the seller during that 60 day diligence window. Mac, how did you, uh, how did you vet sports engine? And I, I guess there's the subjective, like, I like this guy. I think I can work with him. I think he's being, you know, true to his word, which I, I get. It sounds like you did that vetting, but were, were there other kind of more objective measurements you used to say, no, no, these guys are legitimate acquirers. They've given me a letter of intent and I'm intending to, they, they look like they intend to consummate this deal. Like, were there objective things that you, you needed boxes ticked before you went exclusive? Absolutely. And that's a, that's a great question and a, an important point. I mean, I think the way I tend to, you know, think it is important to check the personal box, you know, pretty quickly. And so that's my first filter, you know, is this someone I trust, I like, I 
share a point of view with. Um, but as you said, after that, I mean, there are some very important objective things, you know, one of which was, does this company have the resources, you know, financial, human, uh, otherwise to really take our business to the next level? Um, and we had to, you know, some of that was, it was obvious. I mean, they uh, had raised a, a significant amount of capital. Uh, we talked to a few of their investors. We talked to some folks in the industry to get an industry point of view of working with the company, some of their customers. So we did sort of a 360 degree, you know, analysis of all of the constituencies around Sports Engine. How do they feel about their relationship? And um, so we got, you know, very comfortable with them in terms of the business they were building. And then the next and final step was sort of, you know, structurally was the deal that we were discussing was it a deal that could get done on both sides of the table? As you, as you know, um, sometimes you can, you know, have a deal that sounds great on paper, but perhaps, you know, one of the the boards or one of the, you know, an investor who maybe has some sort of veto rights or something may uh, not like the deal for some reason. So we, we put a lot of energy in making sure that we collectively view this as a doable deal, that at the end of the day, the only reason it would derail is some unforeseen or, you know, certainly you find out something very negative in the process. But if everything stayed true, the deal was a doable deal. I could get it done. I could get my shareholders excited about it. And the board of directors of Sports Engine were going to, you know, sign off and wire money at the end of the process. Yeah. Yeah. Such an interesting point in the, in the, in the, in the process, as you point out. So what, um, at this point where you're going exclusive, they've obviously put some sort of letter of intent, uh, in front of you. Is that right, Mac? Like something, something in writing saying, you know, these are the basic deal terms we're envisioning. That's correct. Yes. Okay. So for people who have never seen a letter of intent, um, maybe you could just describe it, paint the picture of it. Like what, how, how many pages is it? Uh, what were the big deal points that were included? Um, maybe just give us a sense of, for someone who's never seen one. Okay, sure. Um, I think from a high level point of view, uh, a letter of intent should outline what I would consider kind of key business points. And those may have specific meaning to either party. So the buyer is interested in certain assets. And so they're basically saying, you know, we're interested in your software. We're interested in this contract. We're interested in. So they're, they're outlining things that are important to them that they fully intend to own or control or have some rights to on the backside of the transaction. Um, from the you know, seller point of view, or my point of view in this case, it was, you know, what are the financial terms of the agreement? What are any contingencies related to that? What happens to my team? Uh, what are the opportunities for us post-transaction? Um, so it really lays out high-level business terms. They tend to be non-binding meaning they can, you know, they can walk away or we can walk away um, based on, you know, certain circumstances, but it really outlines key business terms so that everyone can sort of shake hands and say, if these things hold true, we both feel good about it. Um, and then, you know, from there, you, you know, certainly dive deeper. But to me, it's kind of key business terms on both sides. And in your case, how many turns of the letter of intent were there be between the first version you got from sports engine and the one you actually signed, like how many back and forth and what were the big issues that you guys were grappling with? 
Um, there was a little bit of a, a pre-documentation um, dialogue, you know, certainly where we were discussing uh, sort of CEO to CEO, and and they uh, had a you know corporate development team that was starting to engage that include attorneys and internal resources. And that was still just sort of with me discussing these points in terms of what was important to us. Um, so that happened over the course of a couple weeks, you know, a couple calls a week, we would kind of discuss something, walk away, digest it, you know, come back, discuss it again. Once it, it turned into a letter of intent, I think we probably had, you know, three or four turns on some of these material points just to a lot of it is for clarification's sake, making sure that everybody understands the other person's wording and point of view because those things clearly become important. Um, so probably three or four turns before we signed uh, the letter of intent and moved into the next process. Which was diligence. Talk about diligence. What was this most surprising thing that, I know you've been through this before, it's not your first rodeo, but what was the, the what was really surprising about the diligence in this case? Well, I think most of the surprise was to the upside, you know, and, and that was that, you know, here here you have a, a pretty large organization um, that is based in another state. And, you know, we weren't longtime friends sitting across the street from each other. So their ability to move quickly through diligence, I found surprising because I've been in some other processes where it would you know really bog down. And so they they were. Uh, impressive in how quickly they moved. Um, and I think where they spent most of their energy uh, to get comfort was going straight to our key partnerships. And uh, that's, a, you know, that can be an uncomfortable position for a, a company to sort of open the kimono, as you said, to, you know, your key relationships to put them in front of a potential buyer. There's a lot of risk in that dialogue, but we were very transparent about it with our partners and said, we're exploring this. Um, we'd like it to happen. We want to explain the logic and the benefits to you on the backside. And so we got them sort of comfortable and then introduced them into the process. And that carries risk, but it, it certainly accelerated the outcome. So these are partners like soccer.com. Correct. Who you are trying to, interesting. So you let them know that, that you were talking about a potential merger or acquisition through sports engine. Yes, we did. We, we brought them into the process, uh, at a couple of different levels, you know, strategically, we certainly let them know what we were thinking and what we were trying to do, but then even tactically, you know, we got down into, um, you know, some you know, people talking to people and, and, uh, sort of looking in at the, uh, the, the future sort of roadmap of our software and things like that. So how transparent were you with your own team at this point in the process, your founders, co-founders, as well as your employees? Um, I would say we were overall very transparent about our um, sort of looking for uh, partnerships. And so we, we made it very clear that we thought it was highly likely we were going to do a deal with someone um, after we got to the point that there was, you know, genuine interest in the company, uh, you know, we had some several all hands meetings where I sort of let people know that we're in this exploration, that it was, you know, business as usual with a few exceptions in terms of my time and my, you know, my senior team. Um, so we were, we were pretty transparent. Um, but you know, it's very difficult to keep people focused during that process. And so, um, we also spent a fair amount of time talking about the contingency 
plans and contingency thinking so that it wasn't a singular sort of bet on that outcome. Um, so most of the employees and teams sort of looked at it like, great if it happens. If it doesn't, we kind of know what plan B is or plan C. How many employees did you have at the time? Um, I think we were at about 10 full-time we had sort of gone up and down from uh, outsourcing development to internalizing it. So it, it fluctuated generally between probably a low of five or six and a high is closer to 20 full time. Mm-hmm. And so you consummate this deal with Sports Engine. Maybe talk a little bit. I know that the actual price is confidential, but maybe you could talk a little bit about the deal terms. Um, the proportion that was sort of contingency slash earnout versus cash up front. Maybe talk a little bit about so people get a sense of, of what to expect in the way of, uh, of a sort of what a consummated deal looks like. Sure. Um, you know, historically, uh, I learned early in my career that I you know, have a strong bias towards, towards cash. <laughs> so I, uh, I sold my first company and was sitting heavily in technology stocks in, uh, the crash in 2000. So I, I learned the painful and hard way that stocks go up and down. <laughs> so You're uh, not the first person to share that piece of wisdom with us, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure. Um, so, I, you know, I have a, a sort of a bias towards cash, but at the same time, we truly believe that we were just in kind of the, the first inning to use your baseball analogy. Um, and that most of the upside in our business was to be determined. And so we actually skewed very heavily towards an earnout structure that allowed us to capture upside in the growth of the business uh, for the benefit of our whole sort of you know investor cap table structure team uh, employees et cetera. So we you know we did uh, you know have some cash at closing, but we weighed very heavily on earnout and the particular structure of our earnout, which I think is important is that we really um, did not want a, what I would call a performance earnout, meaning, you know, Mac shows up to work and if he does a great job, you know, the, the sort of the sales numbers go up, then we're going to participate in that. that. That is, it can be fantastic, but it also carries a lot of subjective risk in terms of how people attribute certain performance. You know, was that really Mac or is that really because of something else that happened and we shouldn't credit you know, Mac or kick with that. So we structured a, um, an earnout that I don't know that there's a legal term for it, but I think of it as a, a named account sort of structure where they took a snapshot in time at the moment of the deal closing and said, these are all of the customers on the kick platform. So we had, you know, 400,000 players and, and thousands and thousands of youth organizations on our platform. So we took a snapshot in time. And then we take a snapshot in the future and say, between the deal closing and this date several years out, the growth in revenue, we participate in that. Whether we personally did something, whether, you know, I had two salespeople, they had about 80. So if the 80 people that are sitting there on the sports engine side can help drive revenue in our previous clients, we participate in that. So it was an important structural um, component that made that appealing to us in this case. Interesting. So with, so with the named account earnout, so make, make sure I make this clear. Uh, you take a picture, a snapshot of all of your accounts today and you say, okay, in three years time. And it was the window three years in your case. 
It was, yes. And is that contingent on you staying as the CEO of the Kick division through that three years? Um, no, it isn't specifically. No. So you, so in theory, you you've separated the role of of your employment versus the the ownership of the company. Exactly. How does how does it work with the shareholders, the investors? So they they kicked in cash. And and how have they now? How will they now participate? Or did did, did they get all their cash out uh, based on the cash at closing? Or are, have they now had to sort of carry that investment, if you will, into the new uh, earnout pr- pr- uh, structure? So it's a little bit of both. Some of uh, some of them did um, take their cash out, um, but most of the investors are effectively participating in the earnout because again that that was our, you know, our analysis was that that was the best potential outcome for them, that taking money at closing and sort of being done would be a, you know, hopefully a fractional outcome uh, compared to the end of a three-year earnout where we've been leaning heavily into this business. Their resources are sort of putting wind behind uh, the software we built, the customers we had, et cetera. And so they were um, sort of participating in that process as well. So... so the earnout piece is not—is it capped or is it un, uh, theoretically unlimited? It's it's theoretically unlimited. So, have you got a sense in your mind of of do you have sort of a I'm I'm assuming you have sort of a best case, worst case, and expected case in terms of what the earnout will look like three years from now? I do. I mean, I think it's um, you know some of it is just sort of our our best guess analysis and some of it is gut. Uh, so it's not precise by any means, but we do have sort of a, uh, you know, a range of outcomes that we think it would fall within. And, uh, the way we came to our ultimate decision was we felt like in the low case, um, I wouldn't call it the worst case because there's always these sort of outlier things that gosh, we never thought of that, but in a sort of low case, we felt like the outcome was still reasonable and good. Um, so it, it felt like an upside story. And uh, once we got to that point in our sort of analysis, we thought, okay, this is a, this is a good structure and a good transaction. Yeah. So if we take the low case scenario for the earnout, again, I don't need to know the numbers, but it'd be helpful for folks listening to think of the proportions. If, if you hit the low case earnout number, what proportion of the entire deal would have been the cash at closing? You know, in the low case, it, it could be, um, I'd say maybe 25% um, somewhere. I mean, uh, may, you know, somewhere in the 20 to 30 range, I would, I would imagine. Got it. Got it. So in the higher case, it would be kind of somewhat lower as a proportion. So heavily weighted towards upside. Exactly right. Got it. And so what else did you do structurally beyond the named account thing where you took the snapshot, what else have you done? Because I mean, I think a lot of people listening will be go, wow, you are, you're rolling the dice on sports engine and, and, and really trusting that they are true to what they say they can do as a partner. Um, what else gave you the confidence that uh, beyond what we've already sort of talked about um, to do that deal? Because that's a heavily weighted to, to kind of sharing in the, in the upside. Yeah, I think candidly, it was our analysis that Sports Engine is just going to win. I mean, we 
when we looked at accounts, even in the soccer space where we were very strong and we had our particular, you know, focus in terms of our software, there were other things that, that were in and around software organization, or excuse me, soccer organizations that, you know, we didn't do a hundred percent of uh, what they needed. So there were typically other software providers and other companies in there. And increasingly sports engine was the de facto sort of winner, or we may be in a large organization where they had a little piece of the business and we had a little piece of the business. So I, I really came to the conclusion that, that they're going to get a lot of these customers with or without us. And we can sort of add fuel to the fire and help them in the process, but they're going to sort of win regardless. So, so I want to you know, be on their team. So were they a competitor of yours, Mac? They were, yes. And so did in the negotiations, did they ever throw that back in your face and say, you know what, we're just going to compete with you. We don't need to buy your company. They, they never did it, certainly in an aggressive way. I think it was the, you know, the unspoken outcome that either one of us could walk away from the table and be competitors. We had a few exclusive agreements that would make their, their vision to dominate soccer like they were intending to dominate every sport. We would have been a, a hurdle to that. Um, so I think there was a fair amount of, uh, you know, they, they had a lot of respect for that and, and vice versa. We knew there were certain things where they were just stronger and we probably weren't going to win in certain categories. Um, so it was never really an aggressive negotiation at all. I mean, I had a lot of respect for the way they handled it. In the named account uh, earnout structure, what, what happened if you both shared the same account? Um, we did an analysis in advance, and we had done this a few times, and, and there was very little overlap. And, um, and I think in the end, I, and I don't even recall off the top of my head, I think in the end, we were given credit for all of our accounts, um, regardless of if there was overlap, but the overlap was pretty small. Great. And so this deal was consummated in 2015, right? Uh, no, 16. 16. Okay. So recently, yeah. really recently. Yes. So how's it going so far? Uh, it's been great. You know, we, we are, um, Sports Engine has been consistent and true to their word in terms of uh, the handling of all of the material points. Um, in terms of, you know, team personnel, um, all, all those kind of things that are very important, you know, you don't want to feel like you did something and then the rug gets pulled out from under you. Um, and then the actual business side of uh, sports engine is, has been very interesting. I mean, the sports engine, uh, has effectively, uh, partnered with NBC sports, um, which gave a whole nother, level of resources, both in terms of, uh, you know, capital, but also, you know, TV distribution, um, you know, rights. I mean, obviously NBC is the owner of tremendous sports rights around the world from the Olympics to, you know, governing bodies and all kinds of things. So that was a real boost to, um, their sort of vision. And that's a lot of what I saw early in our dialogue is that they were likely to I didn't know who it was going to be per se, but I thought they were very likely to find a partner that could almost make it game over for the other competitors. And NBC Sports, it, it obviously is the is a hundred pound gorilla. Exactly right. <laughs> interesting, interesting. And so, have you started to see the effect of of NBC play itself out and on a day to day level at, at Kick? 
Yeah, I think I think there are a number of levels. I mean, certainly it adds immediate credibility to the conversation you're having with organizations. I mean, as you know, in in the small business world or in the tech space, there's always this sort of viability risk question. If you're out talking to someone, they think, is this company going to be around, you know, a month from now, a year from now? Do they have enough capital? Are they profitable? That, you know, ends that conversation um, and and provides a level of credibility that's really hard to establish uh, for most kind of innovation type companies. And so that's been an immediate boost. And then I think access to media resources, uh, tech resources, you know, all of the sort of the team and the intellectual property in that ecosystem is is really powerful. Sounds like an exciting, exciting partnership. As you look back on it, you know, with the benefit of hindsight, what one thing might you do differently about the sale of kick to sports engine? Um, I'd say the single biggest thing, and this is one of those, it's a luxury. I don't know that we would have had the luxury or not. Uh, however, if I was <laughs> picking in hindsight, um, you know, I would say trying to increase the runway to give us optionality. You know, as you know, the most powerful position to be in is someone wants to buy your business and you don't have to sell it because you have multiple options, either in terms of other buyers or you don't need to sell it because you're so profitable or you have $3 million, you know, on the balance sheet. And so I, you know, I went into this knowing that we had to have an outcome one way or another. We're going to sell the business, we're going to raise capital, but there is not a let's just keep doing what we're doing. Um, and, you know, in a perfect world, we would have put some cash on the balance sheet, created some optionality, and then, you know, begun our conversations. And, and really the only difference is, I think we would have come to the same conclusion and probably the same outcome uh, because I was truly excited about Sports Engine and I, I still am today. But it, I'm sure it would have changed the financial leverage in the negotiation, uh, you know, to our benefit. So with, you know, the benefit of hindsight, if I could have done that, I, I think that would have been smart. Such great advice. The, the, the old BATNA best alternative to a negotiated agreement, I think is the, the acronym or the, the definition of the acronym, but it's such a, such a good point And, uh, one that sounds like, um, all of our guys could listen uh, or listeners can uh, benefit from. Mac, what are you doing now? And, and it sounds like you've still got a day job, but where can people reach you if they want to reach out? I mean, can they reach out on LinkedIn or wh where's the best place for for folks to find you? Um, yes, no, that'd be great. I am actually, uh, I've been a blogger for a number of years at maclackey.com. So it's M-A-C-L-A-C-K-E-Y.com. And, you know, even since the transaction, uh, the most recent transaction I have tried to step up my sort of blogging uh, just as really a platform to share, you know, advice, points of view, things I've done wrong. And uh, I'm a, I'm a pretty transparent guy. And so I get a lot of questions and, and feedback uh, that if I can be helpful for people, I would love to do that. I think all your listeners are the perfect sort of, you know, successful companies that are trying to figure out the exit path or what's next. And I've been, I've been through the process. I've made my mistakes, but um, so I try to use my site as a platform to communicate some of that. So that would be great. That's fantastic. So everybody go to maclackey.com, L-A-C-K-E-Y.com. Check out Mac's blog. I think, uh, you will not be, uh, disappointed. Mac Lackey, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me.
Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at facebook.com slash built to sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W.